Welcome to The Collective Perspective. Truth, expression, community, and Black Lives Matter. We at The Collective Perspective are not impartial or on the fence about Black Lives Matter. We unequivocally support Black Lives Matter in our actions, our thinking, and in our spirit. Your Experience with Race and Privilege with Isaac J. Connor, an actor, director, and producer based in the New York City area, Celine Yohamas, a drummer, percussionist, and educator in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Mia Medeiros, a painter, photographer, and graphic designer in the San Francisco Bay Area, Tori Lee, an actor, author, dancer, and educator in the San Francisco Bay Area, Daniel Bartholomew Poyser, a musician, conductor, and educator in Toronto, Alberta, Canada, Christopher Rayshon Marshall, an actor, writer, and director in the New York City area, Shimon Foy, a family man, screenwriter, director, and producer in the New York City area, and Tamara Foy, a family woman and owner of Moms Love, Inc., also in the New York City area. My name is Shaman Foy. I was thinking about this, too. One of my first experiences with racism, I'm sure there were probably others, but the first one that really comes to mind, I, I, I was from a place called Elizabeth, New Jersey, and anybody that knows New Jersey knows that that is pretty, uh, it's pretty urban, and it's, and it's primarily... Uh, you know, African-American and Hispanic. So I actually moved to the next town over that was a little more mixed. So then my cousins moved from Elizabeth to Colonia, New Jersey, which is even a little further south. And it's, uh, and it's pretty much like at that time in the 80s, it was an all white uh, community. So, so I said, uh, I want to see your house. And we were in Linden. Uh, and I said, and I said, and we all had a bike. So I said, let's ride our bikes to Colonia. So uh, we rode our bikes, uh, it was very, very far. And we, once we got into Colonia, which is pretty much almost Colonia, we were in a place called Rawway that was, that was uh, a white, pretty much all white community. Uh, these guys, and I was probably about 11 or 12. Uh, these, these guys said, uh, this guy uh, came out of the house and he said, I don't know if we're supposed to use words or, or curse or anything, but he said, you end word uh, to all of us. You know, and it was about three of us riding on our bikes. And then he said, uh, and then I heard gunshots. So we don't know if he was slamming the door. We don't know whatever. But the way that we interpreted things is he was yelling the N-word to us. And, and then we heard gunshots and we just rode our bikes as fast as we could. Now, I'm, I'm sure there were other instances way before I was 12, but that stood out because I felt really unsafe. And I was like, man, you know, this is, you know, crazy. I didn't know how to expect it. So that's just a little bit. I don't want to take too much time. I'll let someone else uh, share their experiences and share who they are. A real quick question, though. Um, how old were you at the time? I was about maybe about 11 or 12, I want to say. So you and I are roughly the same age. So you, this was in the 80s? Oh, this was in the 80s. Yeah, this was in the 80s. And so well over 30 years ago. And this was in like uh, Middlesex County, New Jersey. And Colonia is one of the richest towns in Jersey, I believe. Even Lucille Ball used to live there. So it's a lot of affluent people. And if, there are a couple of blacks, but they're all like segregated. So uh, on my way to there is where I had this experience, and that was, that was pretty scary. My name is Daniel Bartholomew Poyser, and I'm currently the Principal Education Conductor and Community Ambassador for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and I'm also the Artist in Residence and Community Ambassador for, Hal for, for the <laughs> Symphony Nova Scotia in Halifax. So I spend my time uh, between those two positions and then freelancing with um, San Francisco Symphony and, and most recently Washington National Opera. So I'm basically a freelance conductor. Uh, in addition, for 10 years before that, I was a public school teacher. Oh, sorry, I was, well, I was a public school teacher, but at a private school. Um, and now I also am a public school teacher as well too. So I've done um, 
done a lot of that, a lot of that sort of work. That's who I am. That's what I do. And lately, it's been a lot of consulting and talking with people and helping people craft statements with regards to the arts and Black Lives Matter. Um, my first, the first incident of racism that I can remember, I don't know if this is, well, I'll say two. The first incident of race stuff that I can remember actually came from me. Um, I was four years old or so, and my mom had um, taken me to a babysitter. And I remember my mom taking me to the house of this new babysitter. And um, they said, yeah, where's this, where, where's the guy? And he, and he came out and he walked across the veranda. And I looked up and said, you're white. Because um, I'd never encountered white people before, like like to be taken care of or like to have like a white person in shirt. So I don't know how he felt about that. Um, maybe we can look him up and see his reaction. But I was four and he was, you know, 18 or 20 or whatever. So um, that was my first, one of my first memories of, that's actually my first memory of encountering difference. It's fun. He's a great babysitter. Uh, this is Montreal, 1982. And then 1983, 84 or so, we moved to Calgary. Uh, same kind of stories from as Shaman, moving to an all, basically, yeah, it was an all white neighborhood, come on. And uh, we're the only black family there. And within two days, my, um, the first thing that happened was I, I went to the park. I remember sitting in the park on my bike and a bunch of kids came around me and uh, I was circled by them and they were like, hey, N-word, and they spat on me and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, if, you know, you know, basic learned racism of 10, 11 year olds, like we say the N-word, we spit on them. There was no physical violence, but I mean, I guess spitting is physical violence. So, yeah. Um, and I was able to escape, you know, talk my way out of it and make laughs sheepishly. And then I didn't really play outside. I was scared to go outside for the next four years four or five years, and that's not an exaggeration. I didn't really play outside or go outside uh, because I was afraid that they would find me or catch me. But um, at the end of that period, the, the, the bully, the main one, I don't know if he found education or religion, whichever one is he found, he actually came back to me and apologized. And um, I got on my bike to try and, you know, I said, okay, that's great, thank you so much, ha ha ha. Uh, go, tried to get on my bike and go away. And I fell off my bike and he actually, um, helped me up and walked me home. He was, you know, considered older and bigger. So those were some of my experiences, my initial experiences of race, definitely in terms of my life as a kid. The first one that really um, that characterized my life in that neighborhood was that one because I just didn't go outside very much. I stayed with like very safe friends, but I was dangerous. But um, yeah, that's who I'm, that's my first experience with racism and a bit about who I am. Hi everybody, my name is Christopher Rachel Marshall. I live in Brooklyn and I'm originally from Mississippi. I am a, an actor, a writer, and director for both stage and film and screen. I also created this program that I do in partnership with a subsidiary company that's connected to the BOE, where I go, where I teach children with autism how to improve their reading and writing by using Shakespeare. And as far as my first experiences with racism, the first thing that I remember is growing up in Mississippi, I'm actually uh, mostly a majority Native American. And so the first incident I had was being a black or dark skinned Native American around a bunch of black uh, or African American children and, and being proud of that Native American culture that I go home to every day. And, and then going to school and telling them that I'm Native American and, and their response is, you ain't Indian, you black. You, you, you ain't Indian, you were Indian, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, for my own people, 
because they assume that just because you're a certain skin color, in order to be Native American, you have to be like really, really light skinned with pretty hair and pretty eyes and stuff like that. It almost became, created an erasure of my own culture that I had pretended to like not be a part of my own culture and just be a part of the African black culture. Do you know what I mean? That was like my first, first experience with it. There's been a little, like in, in high school, I had a, a principal who told me, because I was in the top 10, uh, and I got bumped back to the top, to number 14 in my class, but he came to me and said, I will quit my job and become a priest before I ever let a black person graduate in the top 10 of, 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 of his class. And then the first time I've dealt with like blatant, just in your face racism was when I moved to New York. In the three day period, I had three white people in three different situations call me the N-word. And this was in New York, a woman, I was training with my martial arts group in Central Park. Uh, I was transpiring with this white guy and a woman yells across the park, stop being so aggressive, you effing N-word. And then the next day I got on the train, on the A train, white guy was sitting in the middle seat and I asked to sit down and he didn't move. So I sat down anyway. And he, he, he had scooted over to the other seat and stared at me for like three stops. And then when he got off, he said, you stupid N-word. And then like walked off the train. And then the very next day I got on the three train and I sat down by a white guy. Um, didn't think anything of it. He looks across the train to the other white people and said, who told the N-word that he could sit beside me? Those happened three days in a row in New York City in 2016. Hi, everybody. Tamara. Um, New York. <laughs> I was just, just taken back by all the, what everybody has shared so far. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I, I haven't, I've had experiences, but nothing to that level. And, you know, it's, I'm just really sorry that, you know, um, the men, on this call have experienced those things like at such young ages and just continuously, it's, it's terrible. Um, I guess my earliest experience with racism, I was in, uh, my family was, um, it seemed like one of the first uh, bunch of black families to kind of like uh, start going to the Poconos back in the really early 80s, um, Pocono resorts and stuff. and. Um, at the time, it's like we would be the only black family around, it seems. My sister she was a baby, so I must have been about three or four years old. And we went, my mother went to put her in the pool. I think it was at the Shawnee Resort. And everybody jumped out of the pool when my infant sister got into the pool. Um, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. The, the whole place cleared out. Sorry about the noise. Every, you know, um, no one said anything in particular, but it, I guess that was my first experience. And then um, I've had little things here and there, like throughout my years, I, I might be swimming somewhere and someone, I remember recently actually someone said, oh, it looks like a dog's in the, in the pool. Yeah. So this wasn't so, this wasn't necessarily so bad, but it, it did stand out. Um, I have three kids and we got stuck uh, in Tampa um, without a nanny. Our nanny kind of bailed on us. 
um, we were at a wedding and we needed someone to watch the kids. Anyway, she, um, the bride found someone at the last minute, but she, she didn't feel like she had to say, well, these are black kids um, that you're gonna be watching. Um, and we didn't know what the nanny looked like. It didn't really matter. We just wanted somebody that's gonna take care of the kids. And when the nanny arrived, similar to um, the gentleman's story, um, it was a, a white woman and she just kind of like looked so shocked to see the kids. Um, and we were like, okay, we'll see how this works out. Um, and you know, at the end, when we went back to get the kids and everything, she's like, oh my God, they were such lovely children. And I was like, you thought that they would be different, you know? Um, but it was her kind of first experience, it seemed like taking care of um, black children. A lot of wheels turning whenever I, I hear people's stories. Uh, I'm assuming it's the same for you all as well. Um, whether you can identify with it or not, it's always pretty unsettling. One of the things that really, I, I, that kind of stood out to me was when Daniel was sharing how you, you the racism came from you initially, one of your first experiences. And because so many things are being brought up on a daily basis right now with our continuing protests and the way I see it, our continuing evolution of revolution is every day new things are going to come to light. And there were, there were topics that were kind of left off last week because we ran out of time and we saved them for this week. So I'll bring those up as well. But the one thing that Daniel said that made me think about this was about, there was something posted recently, and maybe Mia, this is what you shared, I don't remember, but it was about reverse racism. When I first heard the term reverse racism, I, I remember thinking, well, that's a load of horse. Because there are a lot of words that are, are, are kind of like the, the soft backhanded racism that people can use without realizing how racist they are. Like wigger. That that's gets used all the time and very innocuously. Like, no, no, just a you know, white guy that kind of, you know, has the black culture, is maybe a rapper or something. How did you put that word together? There were two words that made you put that word together, and I'm pretty sure most of us aren't comfortable with them, you know? So that's one thing. But the other thing is just that there's racism or there's not. So like, if you're black and you have a problem with me because I'm white, whether I think it's justified or not, that is racism. So like, I remember I had a, there was a guy that got involved with my burlesque troupe he was doing the sound for me. So whenever I had big things, he was always the guy helping me. And I remember one of the promotional events, we're all chilling after the event, drinking, and everybody's so happy that this thing is happening. And I remember he said to me, he was like, man, this is really educational for me because until I met you, like, I just kind of assumed all white people were rich. And I remember like, I, it was such a weird thing, like I, something crazy flew in my ear, you know, like that I just instinctively said like, you racist mother. And so it began, we, we began to have a good conversation because of it. And so I'm just saying, with regard to the term reverse racism, that's, that's such a racist idea that like, white people can be racist. But if you have that same problem back, you're, no, no, no. We're the racist. You're, you're reversing it. You're trying to have what we have. I, that's my, my take on it. Um, what are your, I'll start with Daniel, because you're the one that kind of made me think about it but what are your thoughts on reverse racism and wigger and these kind of soft backhanded racist remarks well speaking specifically to the term wigger that you used i mean that like you said it's like there are two words that are part of that 
So if structurally the racism depends upon the reverse racism depends on the initial racism, which is the N-word, then I think, yeah, we can see why it's, it's still offensive. But it's not just like, you know, it's not just a question of words, it's also a question of power. So there have been times when the only, the only means of, um, not retribution, but the only means of equalization have been a struggle. And it's a 400 year struggle that's been going on in terms of like black and white issues in North America, right? So reverse racism, that's pretty rich. That's pretty rich when the knee has been on the throat of a people group for 400 years and still has been as of March 25th. Um, so yeah, I think somebody could say, yeah, white, like a black person saying X, Y, Z, you're using reverse racism, but then they also need to look at like the reasons why that's happening um, at a bigger, at a much, at a much bigger, ma like at a macro level. And when you look at it like that, it's like, yeah, it, it kind of, there's a reason why, because what means are there of protest, legitimate protest that people can enact um, against the power that, you know, controls most of the means of communication in the discourse. I have a comment, if you don't mind. Um, so my first run in with racism was when I was three years old and I feel like we need to really think about the definition of what is race. Like race is not a skin color. Race is a group of people who are culturally alike, socially alike, who share the same values, same ethics, same, same, sometimes same features, but race is more overarching than just skin color. So when I experienced it, it was in Germany, these two little kids on the playground pinned me down. One of them threw a rock on my head, like a massive rock dropped it on my head, cussing at me in German because I was American. And the second time when I was like, I think four or five, maybe six, um, yeah, it was like kindergarten. And, you know, we used to throw snowballs at the German guards and they would cuss at us in German and something along the lines of you stupid American girl. And they would shove their rifles with the bayonets in the, on the end through the barbed wire fence, you know, yelling at us and we would giggle and run away. But I remember as a child thinking, this isn't right. This is, this is somebody being prejudiced towards me because I'm American. And so I think racism, a lot of my frustration recently is with people's definition of being a racist and race. I think we're forgetting what the overarching truth of it is. And I'm going to read you guys something really quickly um, that really pissed me off recently. Isaac, I sent it to you uh, the other day. And this woman posts reminder, and she's white, that racism is prejudice plus power. Therefore, you cannot be racist towards white people because white people have always had control in this country. That's not to say white people can't experience prejudice or stereotyping, just that reverse racism is a myth. Okay, carry on, little heart. So I, I wrote to the effect of this is bold because <laughs> I don't think that that's correct at all. I think. Racism has nothing to do with power as a culture, right? As a society, I have personally seen black on white racism and the, and the opposite. So, I mean, and not just somebody calling somebody a name, being prejudiced, but like true violence. And so for me, I know for a fact that it's there, but no matter what I told these women, they were like adamant they didn't want to hear it and it was so i had to like bow out you know so what do you guys think about that because that really 
that really got under my skin. I think I would say it is also about power. I think it, 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 that's an important thing for me, I think, um, in terms of like a people that have been, you know, that have been put down. I think that I think that's an important factor in it. But at the same time, yeah, you are right. Um, racism against another race is not going to solve the problem. But I think power is an important aspect to look at in it. I don't know. I think power can be in it, but I don't think it's reliant on power. I don't think okay, that yes, okay, yeah. power, right? Yeah, Do you agree with yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I've heard the same statement that you've made several times, and I, I have and cannot agree with it in different scenarios. When you look at the definition of racism, at least the Oxford English and the Webster definition, it is discrimination against a group of people based on race or ethnic group. I think the issue is in the weaponization of that racism. As a black man, I'm raised to believe that when I encounter white people, expect racism. And if you don't get the racism, then then great. That's a great situation that you're in. You find a white person who's not being racist towards you. There's a lot of things that we can go and say, oh, well, yes, saying the saying wigger is a racist term, but at the same time, I think that, and this isn't an excuse, but I think that a lot of the names that have come up have been made up about, like, for example, white people like Punky and Cracker and Wigger and all these other names have been, in a way, sort of a reaction. Because before any of them, those names came up, the N-word has been used by white people to explain, to describe black people for hundreds of years. So, so and I told her that. I said, you know, I understand that black people have a better excuse, for lack of a better term, to be upset with white people. And so there's, there's like, it's almost more justified in my opinion, but still it doesn't make it right, right? Like anything violent or mean is not right in my eyes. But there is a little yeah. bit more justification because of the history that goes behind it. And I said, you know, I think it has to do with more of like a superiority complex. Like you think that you're above somebody and therefore you're going to hate on them. That to me is more racism than the whole power behind it. In history, we have seen uh, with the police now, with the politicians, uh, with, with uh, plantation owners, we have seen a history of repeated violence where black people have lost their lives because of their skin color, yeah. because they didn't have the power to fight back against uh, white people who did have power. And so you think about when you're bullied, when you've been bullied, like you, you mentioned about the situation with the children who were beating you on the rock, with the rock. How did you feel in that situation? Well, I felt, I felt the prejudice, right? And I also have been, you know, the opposite situation of you in predominantly black schools, which I shared in our last call. And, um, you know, pinned to the ground again by black girls saying they hated my kind, I, you know, I was a cracker, don't, don't ever look at them, like don't even look in their direction or they're going to beat the shit out of me. And um, I remember my dad, like, you know, had enough and he yanked me out of the school, literally threw me over his shoulder, went to the girl who was bullying me, said something really mean, I don't remember what it was, I just remember she burst into tears and we left. And I, and so then I went to like an all white school and then I went back to an all black school, almost all black school, which there was a ton of violence. And that's where I started really seeing it more frequently. And they segregated the lunchroom, just like you said, there was like this tiny little cluster of white people who were scared. And then there was like everybody else that was black, you know, beating on the tables and having fun and feeling good. And so I was like, I want that. Like, I want to be not a wigger, 
because the Wiggers were different than the white girls who got in with the blacks, you know, but I wanted to be in on that because I was curious. And we talked about that curiosity last time too, Isaac and Celine, um, about how that curiosity is, is a good way to help bridge that gap. But I think, you know, instead of sitting there in fear and sitting there upset about all that bullying that I had encountered personally, I was like, how can I turn this around? How can I, how can I be on their side? Like, how can I make their culture part of my own? And I like fell in love with it. Like I fell in love with the culture and I, you know, I just had an African fashion class, like for my art studio. Like I just, I love it. Like I love so many things about it, but, and I wish other people could see it from a curiosity standpoint that it has nothing to do with power. I think that's, that's a, that's something where we've really gotten off track as whites. Like our privilege has become what they think to be power. And it, it's not, it's, it's like a, it's like an illusion, right? I mean, it, it kind of is and it isn't like it shouldn't be. I don't know. I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say here. It's like, is anyone feeling what I'm putting down here? It's like, yeah, I see where you're, I see what you're saying. I feel, I feel like on the opposite side too, like essentially what you're saying. I yeah. find things that bother me. When you, you made a comment about how I want to make that culture a part of my culture, correct? What bothered me was when I was teaching high school, I was doing a musical and I was going to do a hip hop version of the musical. When I looked on, clicked on videos of hip hop bands, and all I saw was white people in hip hop clothes. I didn't see one black person when I typed in hip hop dancing. When I typed in black people dancing, they showed a bunch of... For black of a better word, project looking women. And they just looked very nasty and disgusting. And this was when you typed in black women dancing. And so that for me became really a, a form of internet racism. That's just in where it's like, okay, when you type in hip hop dancing, a dance that was created by our culture, all you see are white people doing. There are different things that this part of the conversation made me think of. One is representation versus appropriation. And one is, I want to share something. The title of the film is Crack Up. And we were talking about some of these words and whether they have the same kind of power, which I don't feel they do, as some of the disparaging words against Black people. Again, this film is, is called Cracka. It's not out yet. There are always, no matter, you could post a picture of bunnies, like, chewing on flowers and nothing but rainbows and lollipops, and somebody would, would dislike it. This particular trailer has just over 1 million views. 28,000 people have liked it. 37,000 people have disliked it. Normally your dislikes are a small fraction unless you've really made crappy art and you're trying to share it with people. I have two, two reactions to that. One is you have to watch the trailer to see, and that is part of the trailer shows a bumper sticker that says Trump 2020. So you're gonna get those fascists that are just, well, you said something about Trump, it's, it's derogatory, so screw you. And that's probably a big part of it, to be fair. But the main thing, though, is that this is, this is what looks to be a much more challenging take on a really, really bad 90s film that had a good heart and some good acting, but like poor execution. And it was called White Man's Burden. I don't know if you all are familiar with that. So it has uh, Henry Belafonte was playing the, the wealthy, affluent patriarch of this, this family. And then John Travolta plays the poor white man. And, and there's a whole speech with Harry Belafonte saying, we are the superior race. So basically they just, they flipped it. 
and it was a good film to make. This seems to be hitting the nail right on the head. I'm hoping that it does anyway. So that's unsettling for white people, I think is why it has so many dislikes. And so I think part of the internet thing that Mia was talking about is not so much about marketing. It's just that the people who are sharing stuff are inherently racist. Hey, there's also, um, it's, things have been revealed in, in the different social media platforms that it is purposely done. Um, TikTok, for example, um, a report was recently released that um, similar dances like the Renegade, like they'll have, if it's a white person that's doing it, they'll make sure that that actually trend, like that more people have access to it than if it's a black person. And apparently this is something that's been done for a very long time and we're all just kind of becoming aware of it. Yeah. A video that has gone viral is there's this young uh, white lady who, got, who wrote a speech basically because she heard two other white people speak and didn't like what they said. Hi, I'm Riley Calloway and I'm here in support of the ordinance representing Stand United. Um, I did not come here to speak, but after hearing what Karen here behind me said, I needed to speak up. Um, she's upset because her officer husband is being cussed at and supposedly followed and spit on, but I just want to point out that people who are black have had to endure all of that and brutality at the hands of the people who are supposed to protect them for over 400 years, which is why we are here to protest in the first place. So I am sorry that in the last 10 days you have felt just a little bit uncomfy, but I hope that you can understand that you've now had a fraction of a taste of it. And if you've got any empathy in that little blue heart of yours, then I suggest that you start looking at this from the other side, the morally, legally, and ethically correct side. It is not a blue life, it is a blue shirt. Another Karen earlier, another Karen earlier said, if someone broke the law, then they should be arrested. Okay, so then let, let's arrest the police who said, screw everything that they learned in their supposed max of six months of training, and let's arrest the police who turn off their cameras. Let's arrest the police who use violence against people on the opposing side just to prove an invalid made-up point. If someone broke the law, they should be arrested. So let's arrest them. Someone here said that we are not against you. We just want you to do what you swore to do, which is protect and serve. So why are we protecting ourselves against you? If you are more concerned about protecting property rather than law-abiding citizens, then you are the problem. We show up in t-shirts and holding signs, but the officers and military are showing up locked and loaded with bulletproof shields to protect them against what? Paper cuts? After a ma probable maximum of six months of training, you can't handle someone yelling facts in your face? At this point, the opposers know what the right decision is. Karen, you were not at the protest. We were. We saw what happened with our own eyes. You watched the news. That is the difference. We are speaking on experience and you are speaking out of willful ignorance. But enough about her. I am really here to tell all of you to vote yes because the wall behind you says, let honor, truth, and justice rule within these walls. And I hope that you abide by that. Thank you. She didn't say anything that black people have, haven't been saying for years. This is what, what uh, Fred Hampton and Huey Newton and all of our predecessors of the Black Power Movement were basically saying, and they got assassinated for saying it. They became enemies of the FBI, enemies of the state, because they were trying to ask for, for equality for Black people. Martin Luther King assassinated for speaking out. Uh, essentially, he was okay whenever he was just speaking about peace, but close to the end, he started getting a little militant as well about how we to defend ourselves, and then all of a sudden he gets shot right after, like a few months after he makes his self-defense speech. We've been saying these things for years. We've been saying these things since the Black Lives Matter movement started. The Black people have been saying this for years, 
And I think that the reason why things are getting done about it now is because white people are stepping up and speaking up now. I think that just goes into like the power, you know, people have been saying this for years. I had a conversation with my, um, my coworker, um, who's a white woman and, you know, we're talking about it. I work for government and we're, you know, it's, it's becoming a, a big discussion within work and, you know, it, it, it just seems like the more, um, white voices, the more it's taken seriously. And on one hand, I'm like, you know, whatever way works, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, wow, this is really showing an example of what, you know, us as black people are, have been talking about for centuries, you know, that there's an event, yeah, white privilege. I have my daughter next to me, she's 12. She's like, white privilege? <laughs> I did want to comment though really quickly, Mia, I understand what you were trying to say and I kind of um, struck as far as like racism and power and everything and I kind of struggle with it because I think that, you know, any way you slice it, it feels terrible, whether the person's, um, I, 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 but I do agree that it, there's prejudice, there's bigotry, and then there's racism and I just feeling as an American, you know, how America as a whole kind of defines racism it's like it's that power that almost that makes it racism it's like as you were saying your experience and i'm so sorry that, that happened for these these stories are terrible i'm sorry that happened to you at such an early age um and in general but you felt powerless in that situation and i feel like that's to me more of a definition of racism is where the it's you're being discriminated against because the color of your skin and there's a certain power associated with that because if somebody says to me you know you're you're ugly or whatever and they have no power over me that doesn't affect me you know whether they're they're white or black whatever if it doesn't affect me i just don't consider it you know racism you know i don't know if you know what i'm saying but my, oh, yeah. my, like it, it's it's that power is is definitely attached. I see it as lack of power. I see it as because I don't want to give power to the people who are being racist. Right. You know? They don't have power over me, but it was my lack of power in those moments that that allowed this thing to happen. And allow might be the wrong word, but you know, after each instance, I got saved in some way. But then when I went to the next school, which was in middle school, fast forward, that because that was elementary. So middle school, um, you know, my first day there, I got called a honky. I went home and I'm like, dad, what does this mean? And he's like, that's just a really derogatory word. And I don't want anyone ever calling you that again. That's not okay. You can't stand for that, you know? And then I had, you know, other instances where people would try to set me up because I was the new girl and say, I told somebody they look like a monkey and it was totally a lie. And I'm like, why would you say that? And, and so there was like, it wasn't that it was subtle, but it was just very manipulative. It was very behind my back kind of stuff happening. And once I got a hold of it, I took my power back, you know? So even as a white privileged person, you lose power every now and then. 
and I'm not saying everybody does. I'm not saying this is the norm either, because I don't think that this is normal for most white people. I think most white people are completely oblivious to this. And they just go along, living their little lives, you know, like everything's peachy keen. But um, there's a whole world of racism out there that they're just now waking up to. And I think it's the, the novelness of a white person coming on and going viral that is what's making it so popular. I don't know if it's because that woman was white. It might just be because it was a novel thing for a white person to do it. Just think about Tamara was saying that like by hook or by crook or however it's happening, it's good that it is happening. And I think if for 400 years um, we have not been listened to and people have not paid attention or changed and we've been, as Christopher was saying, shot and assaulted and executed uh, and murdered for saying things that were true, if it finally takes a white person to say to change the structure, then I think they need to get off their asses and say it. Um, I've been asked for a number of interviews for the past week uh, for different orchestras or news, news outlets saying, well, we want, we want you to talk, we want you to say this, we want you to say this. And I'm just like, no, like, let's have like white, like let the white CEOs talk to the white CEOs and let them have that positive peer pressure. And it would be great if we were being listened to. Um, and we should continue to talk about, talk and scream and yell and chat and, um, and protest. But the allies' voices need to be really strong at this point because we're what, in terms, in the United States, it's like 10% of the population. I, I'm, I don't know the exact number, but it's much less, right? So what is really fatiguing to me is people coming to me and saying, um, and with good hearts and they wanna know and they, you know, you know okay, I get it. But like, well, what should we do? What can we do? It's like, well, you, there's, it's been 400 years you can study or like your lifetime and just Google a couple of things to figure it out. Um, and it's not a question of like, what are you gonna do now to look really good on media or social media? But three months from now, August 25th is a three month anniversary. Then November 25th is the sixth month. And then February 25th is a nine month anniversary. Nine months to birth a child. Nine months from now, what will you do looking back? Will you said, what will you have brought to, uh, brought to fruition or brought to, to your life on February 25th when you look back retroactively? So for all the allies that are, t memes are flying and internet is ablaze, February 25th, nine months anniversary. What will you have actually done systemically as an ally, as a white ally? How will you have raised your voice and changed the organization of the small circle you're in? I think that's like the really, really important part. With myself, the only reason I had the time to, to get back into this podcast with a collective perspective was because of the quarantine. When my acting work is, getting, is back to full time, I will not have time to do this. Only thing I have going for me is that it, I tend to attract projects and I'm attracted to projects that highlight social justice. So my work is kind of part of that, but I don't know. And I do feel like I'm failing the, the, the movement for in a couple ways. I feel like I'm failing the movement right now because I'm not protesting on the streets, which is where I truly feel that I belong. Um, but I have certain vehicles that seem to be more, they, they, they seem to be better for me for what I'm trying to do. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little disheartened by my own situation and what I'm allowing to be my situation. But what, are your, what were your thoughts there, Daniel? Just very briefly, I wrote an article for Orchestras Canada called The Perfect Fifth of Diversity, uh, talking about ways that people can evaluate diversity in their own realm. So I would disagree with the notion that the fact that you cannot do this podcast means you're necessarily out of the battle for a number of reasons. Uh, looking at orchestras and like that, uh, performing arts, I guess, um, we highlighted, or I highlighted a couple of different areas. First off, who is, who's performing? 
who's on stage. So who are you putting on stage? Secondly, who is being performed? Which artists, which directors, which composers, which writers are being, are, 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 are part of the focus? Um, who's attending or who's listening? So who's in the audience? Um, and then fourthly, who's deciding? Who's making choices? Who has the, the seats of power? And then fifthly, how are we relating to each other as all of this is being done? So who's performing, who's being performed, who's listening, who's making the decisions, and how are we treating each other as we do that? And if you look, if we look at in our respective spheres after we get off this podcast, I believe whatever spheres in which we have power, whether it's a family, whether it's a mother, a single mother, a single father taking care of kids and bringing in resources and thinking about how they educate those children, or us in positions of power as we choose artists to highlight, to perform, as we open the doors to audiences, as we make accommodations for different audiences, different parts of the public that otherwise might not be able to come, we have influence, we have spheres of power. And that is where the battle needs to be fought in those different areas. That's what I would say. So I think that even if you, once you get off this podcast, this will be an artifact that can last. But I think as we retire to our perspective, respective areas, there's tons that we can do. And we just need, like Esther Perel says, like imagination, imagination about how we can take the space and create the space and make sure that there's no return to invisibility, especially on the part of allies, allies making the space and opening up the doors. The question is, do they, do allies want to do it because they really are allies or do they want to do it because that's the trend going on right now? But, but protests are very important and public displays of your frustration and your anguish are, are very important, but there comes a time where you have to leave the protest and you have to go back home and you have to go back into the community and you have to go back to the film shooting. You have to go back to your job. So just because you're not able to do a podcast publicly, uh, doesn't mean that you're not still able to assist with this with this issue or be uh, a part of the change because if if really the things that we do when we're home and when we're in private and when we're in small groups are just as important if not more important than what we do in a public forum. So you could be on a film set and you can see something that doesn't look right and you can speak up about it. You can share some education, uh, uh, you know, with someone or you can. Uh, have a discussion on the side. So I think that you will continue going because you have a passion for, you've been an activist and you get in the community and you really care about issues like this. So I think you and all of us uh, will continue and can continue to to do things, even if it's in a private sense or on a smaller scale. So I just wanted to say that so because it seemed like you were a little bit discouraged and you were thinking like, hey, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this. And you don't know which way your life is going to turn or what opportunities uh, will happen and how you can do it on a smaller scale. So uh, that's, that's all I wanted to say. No, I really appreciate that. And it, I really, personally, I need to hear stuff like that because I forget. You know, I've already lost fans. Uh, there were people that were following me that would send me message on Instagram um, that were really appreciating my, my acting work. They don't follow me anymore since I started posting this stuff. And so this is, I'm, I'm allowing this to affect my career but this is more important than my career. And I feel like the change that's happening, this paradigm shift, I want to help this shift continue. And I feel like my career as an actor will have a place in that new paradigm. And, and if we don't have that new paradigm, if we're still in a good old boy network, maybe I don't wanna be an actor in that world. Maybe, I, maybe I'm better served doing other things. Is anybody else having concerns about that, about how, what's going on now and your stance that you're taking is going to affect your career because as an, as an addendum to that, 
we have a lot of black people here who you've all had these conversations with each other and with your allies, but you've not necessarily had them openly. And so you have to worry about, we know that there are police officers right now that are aware because of your Twitter accounts or your Instagrams or whatever, that you support Black Lives Matter or you support defunding the police. This is absolutely clear based on the, the new leaks, blue leaks. They follow people based on their online accounts because they know whether they're friendly with the police or not. As a black person, I don't really have a choice in the matter. Um, you know, it's kind of like fighting for your life in a way. Um, I also have kids, so I'm concerned about my children and their lives and my friends and family. So I don't really have that option to kind of, you know, even if I did, I don't because of the color of my skin. You know, and there's a lot of black people, you know, who think otherwise and have taken certain stance, but at the end of the day, you know, at least living in America, you know, the color of your skin deter can determine a lot. Um, so I don't really have that choice. Yeah, I, I actually do think about that. And actually uh, I went to a protest about two or three weeks ago and my kids were, were saying, no, daddy, don't go out there. You're going to get hurt. Look at the TV. All of these people are getting locked up and stuff. And my youngest son started crying. And I'm like, well, what should I do? But I explained to him that I felt that that was the right thing for me to do at that particular time. And if it wasn't, there's other ways that you can help the cause. Uh, you know, you can donate money. You can start, you know, sign petitions. And everybody's not called to protest or do certain things. But I felt at that moment it was. So I felt that it was more important for me to do it at that time than not to. Because I don't want 30 years to go by or however many time to go by. And then I'm saying, man, I wish I would have did something. I had an opportunity to do something. And now some things are even worse. Or I, don't, I can't live with myself because I'm regretting not doing something. Well, I think our, another way of thinking of it is what, do you, what are we patronizing? What are we putting our money and our effort and our focus on? And is that opening doors or is that just opening doors to an exclusive group of people? Is it a, a privileged thinking? Is it creating more opportunities? Um, is it, I think it's the whole patriarchal, white patriarchal system which comes from, you know, colonialism from Europe that has affected absolutely everyone. And the shift is a huge one and it seems so insurmountable. But those little decisions that we make every day, like who are we uh, promoting when we are on social media? Who are what, like Daniel's talking about, like um, on his Facebook, there was somebody who is uh, saying to me like, well, are you coming out to support the CPO? And I said, well, yeah, when, when it's, when it's the things that uh, are really important to me, I spend my money on that. I don't spend my money on everything that's not a, it's not something I, I can do with a child. I, there's, there are limitations to what you can do, but I can open the doors for what I'm purchasing, the shows I'm watching, the people I'm following, the, those types of things are important. And I think that, that this couple is an intersections very closely with um, an issue, the issues of feminism and gender inequality, all of this is all stemming from the same system of oppression. It's the same great big system. And it's possible to always be both oppressed and privileged in different ways. And certainly this is a massive topic, but that was how I've been looking at it. How can I teach 
my four-year-old, um, about different cultures and different races and different parts of the world and different traditions and how th those are the contributions I can make and instead of thinking of how insurmountable it is, it, that's really the activism we make. We pay the money we pay for items, the money we pay for music, the money we pay for shows, the things we decide that we're going to focus our attention on and our intention on and that's all we can do as individuals. I think being a mother taught me that more than anything because I constantly have mom guilt. You know, it's a real thing. You never feel like you're doing enough. You always feel like you're spread too thin or you, you could be doing a million other things for them that's better, but you really have to just focus on what you can do and do it to the best of your ability. And, yeah. you know, I've got three kids, two jobs, and it's just insane. And so for me, this is my contribution. Writing my blog, that was a contribution. Just being there for my black friends, like that's a contribution. Teaching my three children, that's a contribution. So if I can focus on doing those things well, then I don't need to beat myself up. Yes, do everything that you can. But sometimes more than just giving a pat on the back, I think that as an ally, period, if you see someone or hear something that is wrong, speak out on it to that person. People feel, res people understand responsibility when their peers point things out. Because black people can scream from the rooftops that this is a problem and nothing's gonna change. It kind of reminds me of being on the subway in New York and you see the, the signs that if you see something, say something, and that's about violence. And then I thought about that with regards to music and conducting. I was gonna to say to my conducting students, you know, if you hear something, say something. As soon as you hear something wrong, or as soon as you, immediately you say something, okay, this sharp, flat, fat, you know, whatever, fine. But it comes back again to, yeah, if you see something, say something to the allies. Don't just let it pass by, totally. I, I completely agree with you, the way you referenced that, but that is some fascist BS. Basically, when as soon as you enter Penn Station or Grand Central, if you see something, say something. Basically the whole thing, and you'll it, in tandem with that is have a safe day. First of all, telling somebody a computerized thing to have a nice day means nothing. Telling them computerized to have a safe day means nothing. But what it does do is reinforce that we should all be afraid of each other, but that the system is fine. Don't worry about the system. Because what I see on a regular basis is our system effing us over all the time. I see that, but if I say something, <laughs> What, what does that mean, you know? So, I don't know, I have, I have a pretty strong feelings on, uh, on that. So you see that as like a, a very oppressive actually? Like, Absolutely. Right. We, you so should be afraid, that. be afraid. Somebody's gonna do something to you. So mm -hmm. don't be afraid to run to mommy and daddy and let them know that you saw something. And mommy and daddy happen to be people in blue or people who fund people in blue. Right. Hey, yeah, I but I think Daniel's point is that it's that he's referencing in it as if you see something, say something, not to go tell on something. No, I, I understand. Just, yeah. I know, I know. But I was just, yeah. So no, 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 no. But that's, but, that's but that's absolutely part of it. And I, I have um, taken one of my friends who, um, who would absolutely agree with your point. It's like, you see something, say, okay, say something to who? And what would I be seeing? So you could rightly ask that. What, yeah. would I be, what, would I, what exactly should I be seeing? What should I be watching out for? Um, so this actually gets into a slightly different part of the topic that I wanted to bring up because I was raised, born in Montreal, 
and I was raised in Calgary. And I was always the only white person, sorry, I was always the only, in a room full of white people, always the only black person in the room for most of my growing up, most of my years. Um, Christopher, you said earlier that you expect racism from white people, right? I don't expect racism from white people and the way that I've grown up. This is part of my privilege. And I'm not alone. There was an article in the Globe and Mail recently, about two weeks ago, about a guy who says, you know, I grew up in Scarborough, along with white and black people. A lot of the incidents of racism that he's encountered, he's been like, they were nothing to compare to what, um, to what black people in the United States have encountered, right? So it's interesting to see that, because when it's like, in my head, I'm not constitutionally afraid of police officers. And I've had very little, I've had very few negative interactions with police officers, except for two occasions, both of which occurred in the United States, right? Once crossing the border where I got on a bus, I was on a bus with a band trip and the officer walked all the way from the front of the bus to the back where I was sitting and said, show me your passport. And for like the next hour, my teachers, we drove like, show my passport, everything was fine. The, my teachers and my friends were freaking out. They're like, this is crazy. How could that happen? Another time when I was randomly stopped for no reason by a police officer, right? So it kind of makes sense, actually, Isaac, that you would look at that and think, oh, I'm going to tell a police officer. Oh, shit. No, that's not like that's, oh, sorry. I just said, but okay, it's fine. Uh, just swore, but I apologize if that's wrong. Um, okay, fine, good. But that actually, that, actually, that actually makes sense, right? So one of the things that I've been speaking to people a little bit about, and some of my friends from Calgary, are the different experiences of Black people in different areas. Because thank God, I haven't had um, some of the experiences that just like it's just unspeakable like with police officers like specifically right i just i haven't seen that and sometimes i don't know what to do with that fact i don't know what to do with that fact and i feel like am i just like saying stuff that i haven't experienced and part of it's well i have experienced things but like nothing compared to people in some parts of the state so i don't know i'm just throwing that out there but i appreciate what you said about see something say something because you actually are right it's like gotta be careful who you're saying it to so well, Dan, that's, so your, can, that's your Canadian oh. privilege, right? We have a, a, a privilege. You're right. There's Canadian privilege. And from growing up in Calgary, we had a very multicultural situation at school. It was always about multiculturalism and it was always about sharing culture. And it was never, I was never, I had never really experienced that um, idea of isolated segregation, segregation in the schools. And I, that's my privilege from growing up here in a place that's very peaceful and just by sheer luck, right? This is it. This is the sheer luck of it. But it doesn't mean, and, and I, like watching what's going on in the States and how that reverbs here in Canada is absolutely, I mean, they're absolutely linked. But it's also astounding to see the stark difference just in media reporting, uh, <laughs> the differences on how media is reported and how different these reports are. And also just in general, I think that's our Canadian privilege. It really is. I'm, I feel so super lucky that I have a media that is, you know, mostly dependable and truthful and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and has given many different voices. And that's one of the things I loved about the CBC and how the CBC um, radio programs, the Canadian Broadcast uh, Corporation, they did all of this work for absolutely as many communities as possible to keep that multicultural, um, the multicultural ideas of what Canada is 
like the mosaic it is. It's, and that's, that's, I do believe, part of what's helpful. Canada's racial issues are predominantly, though, um, within uh, indigenous mm -hmm. populations. That's dispro hugely disproportionate here. We don't, you know, there's so many, there are so many issues regardless, right? Just on, on that, right? In the mid 1850s, I'm reading literature, uh, both like theological literature about slavery and then just popular literature from mid 1850s, from 1850s. And often Canada is held up as a beacon of, we will, we will get to Canada, things will be different when we get there. And that was for black people, that was largely true. But at the same time in Canada in 1830s, that's when the first residential school opened. And if you're a young Ab Aboriginal girl or boy, you'd be abducted from your parents and thrown into a school. And in some schools, the death rate was, you know, around 45%. Um, you know, yeah, so we definitely have we definitely have our issues. So I definitely feel that Canadian privilege. I'm interested in what I, I would like to know from um, a non-Canadian Black perspective, how you see people like myself. I'm just like, and honestly, like, how do you see somebody like myself who hasn't had some of those same experiences. What can I, what do you feel that I can do? What do you feel that I can say? How much can I speak? Talk, talk to me, teach me and I'll be taught. Well, first I will say that I am actually, like when I said earlier, I told you about the Native American Choctaw, uh, Sixikawa, I didn't go specifically in Sixikawa. It's actually the Canadian Sixikawa. My, grand, my grandfather's family comes from, they're the Canadian Blackfoot, they're part of the Canadian Blackfoot tribe that came down to America because of how bad the Canadian government or the Canadian people were treating the Native Americans in Canada, uh, the indigenous people in Canada. Like, I grew up in a, I would, I would consider you, say, in a fairly wealthy family myself. So even in the white school that I went to, I was always too white for the black people, too black for the white people. Uh, yeah, tokenism. Yeah, I think it's uh, good, good that you asked that. And I think that the number one thing to do is to just try to educate yourself, uh, talk to your American friends and, and us uh, and, and see what are some of the struggles we're having and, uh, you know, watch some Netflix documentaries, read some literature and things like that. And then since you seem to be an influential person, which everybody is, but some people have the opportunity to be able to speak to the masses. You said you've had opportunities to, you know, maybe have interviews or something. Uh, use that influence because you don't have influence for, for, you have the influence for a reason. And, and to speak up about some of the things you witnessed when you came to the States and, and uh, you know, some of the things that you've uh, heard firsthand from, you know, from people like us. And I think that could be helpful. I'll be quoting you. Oh. Same here. <laughs> yeah. 